Well, good morning. My, my name's Andrew Hurd, and uh, I'm actually the senior minister of the church. And if you find yourself not laughing at that, it might be because you're new in the last two months and you have never met me before, so the introduction is probably valid. I am, um, I've been away, my wife and I have been away for the last couple of months. We've um, done some ministry in England and then uh, had a much-needed holiday, and I know many of you have been praying, so thank you for your prayers. Uh, we dared, um, from various uh, feedback that we got through our ministry in England, um, dared believe that it was fruitful. People were very... Uh, churches are now seeing converts and uh, seeing growth. It's been quite an astonishing thing over the years. Uh, but also the holiday, thank you for your prayers there. We had a good time. We survived. And uh, it, was, um, it wasn't um, the classic rest, but it was a very um, uh, refreshing time. So thank you for all of that. And I know I left lots of holes that many of you have filled and thank you for all of that effort that you put in to keep things going. But also just to say, um, for all of you, it's the same. Uh, you, 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 all of you have a part in this ministry. And so when we don't see you, when you're not part of us, it, we feel it. And just to encourage you to see how much you all together uh, make this work here. So continue to be encouraged by that. But thank you for your prayers. Let me pray now. Father, uh, thank you so much for our partnership in the gospel. We thank you for answers to prayer. Uh, we thank you for the way you are working around the world and uh, just hearing uh, Warwick and Sarah's journey. We thank you for what you might do amongst them. But we pray now, please, that by your word, through your Holy Spirit, you would uh, cause this word to be a blessing to us. Help us, please, this morning think carefully and clearly about what you've given us, that we might leave this place transformed and changed by it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this Thursday night, Kathy and I went to the Barbie movie. So, um, and who's, who's been to see Barbie? Who has heard of Barbie, the movie? Yeah, okay, much, much. Who has never heard of it? Yeah, yeah, okay, not many. Um, good. The, um, first impressions, to be honest, I fell asleep twice. Um, and I, I must... I, We've never, we haven't been to Erina for years and years and years. And those lounges, <laughs> man, you push a button and the things come up, leather. I just, I just went to sleep. Um, first impression. Uh, second impression, uh, much confusion. The movie, it seemed to me, had many confusing message and conflicting messages. It was a movie that was kind of against objectifying women. Women are not just to be reduced to their body and so on. But the whole plot was driven by her anxiety over cellulite. So you just had this complete confusion and clash, and she didn't want to look like the weird woman, do you know? And so it wasn't about look, but it was all about looks and confusing message. Not against motherhood, do you know? Yes, if that's a choice. But the whole movie starts with young women, young girls destroying their baby dolls so that they no longer have to play at being mum, because the Barbie has arrived, and you can play at being the adult woman. And so it's really conflicting and confusing messages, which means. Um, Whatever you wanted to find in it, you could find in it. Um, other impressions? It had some very helpful things, actually. I, um, I want to mention some of the helpful things I thought were in it. And there were some very problematic things, uh, all of which I want to get to. Now, you might ask the question, why? why? Why are we going to talk about the Barbie movie in church? We've got the Word of God. We've got God's very voice. Why are we going to pay attention to some secular movie? It's a good question. Uh, well, let me say, because the best I can tell is the movie is not just a movie, it's a cultural phenomenon. That is, the conversation around this movie is bigger than I've heard for years, isn't it? Everybody is talking about it. Uh, and that's because it's not just a movie, it's a sermon. 
It's a sermon. This is not just entertainment. This is written by a feminist writer on the question of men and women, what it is to be a woman, what it is to be a man, what it is to be related together as men and women, how it is to live in this world, what it is to be a person. That It's a sermon on those things. It's not just entertainment. And here's the deal. That is exactly the content of the passage of Scripture we're looking at this morning, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 is a sermon on men and women, how we're to relate, who we are, what we are, what marriage is, what family is, the place at all that place. And so what you have is two sermons in the very week that we're looking at this sermon, we've heard the other sermon. I don't know about the providence of God, but we've had a secular sermon on exactly the same topic. They preach very different messages and uh, you know it's the case, yes. So the Barbie movie is preaching one message, the Bible is preaching another, um, and the Barbie movie is preaching a message that's an alternative to the Bible, not just different, but self-consciously different. It's seeking to present a way of being men and women that unpicks the history of biblical thought, that frees us from the way the Bible has presented and betrayed men and women. So we have two opposing views of men and women, which is a very deep thing. We're not here just talking about trivialities, you know, whether to come to church or not. We're talking about who we are as men and women. And the thing, therefore, as Bible readers is this, um, you know, we don't just need to know what the Bible teaches. We do need to know what the Bible teaches fundamentally. But we need to also understand the Bible in our cultural context and try and make sense of why the messages are so different. Which one is right? And why is one right and one wrong? Now, I hope part of you is just wanting to say this morning, well, I know which one's right. It's the Bible because it's God's word. I know why it's right because God gave it to us. He's the creator. I hope that's your instinct. But we do often need more than that to actually properly engage and properly respond to the scriptures. Why is it that God's word is good? These things can be important and I want to suggest that Barbie movie helps us think this through. So my plan this morning is to consider Genesis chapter 2, go through what it says and then dig deeper into how that connects to the cultural context we're in and use Barbie as a a way to wrestle with that. Does that make sense while we're doing it? And some of you who have seen the movie will be particularly interested, I dare say. Others of you who have not seen it means you don't need to. All right, you can, you can see. It's very expensive to go to the movies. Um, so let's go through Genesis 2. We've got a lot to do. I've got about two hours worth of content. I've been away. And uh, let's... Uh, funny thing, it's not funny, that's true. Genesis chapter 2. Um, Genesis chapter 2 is a recast of the creation account from a different perspective. Now, it is, uh, it is troubling for some people because the Genesis chapter 2 has sometimes the same things talked about in a different way. So the plants are talked about as being created, the animals are talked about being created in Genesis chapter 2, and some uses of the verbs suggest that they're created on the sixth day instead of earlier in the week, Genesis chapter 1. So there's a conflict that people think is there. Um, but I, I would offer for us today that Genesis 2 is a second run at creation with particular attention to day 6, the creation of the first man and first woman. It's effectively the third umpire, um, having you know 
doing the, the video, look at the whole incident from a closer angle, uh, which just brings the pain of sport up. Have we won anything this weekend? Was Australia? But anyway, I think we've lost... Huh? Swimming, we've won the swimming. Yeah, okay. okay. Um, it's, no, we're good. We're good at swimming. That's great. Um, now, the first verses of... Well, the verse 4 of Genesis chapter 2 helps you see some of this because we've... Genesis chapter 2, 1 to 3 is the culmination of chapter 1, the seventh day. But then verse 4 sums it up. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. And just notice two things. The order of heavens and earth is reversed. Because what the writer is doing is now introducing to us a rerun through day six from the perspective of earth up to the heavens. The other little thing that's worth noting there is the word Lord. Capital L-O-R-D tells you that the the Hebrew behind that is Yahweh, the personal covenantal name of God with Israel. And it's introduced here for the first time. Uh, Throughout chapter 1, it was just Elohim, God. As we looked at the cosmic creation, it's God who does it. The majestic, sovereign Lord of all. But as we come into chapter 2, we're now introduced to the personal God of Israel, who is the cosmic God, but who has personal attention in the creation of men and women and their establishment in the world and how they're to live together. And so what we have is a rerun, but from a closer perspective, focusing on day six. Now, some of this we'll look at a little bit further because there are some puzzling things. We'll look at this a bit further uh, next week on Monday night. You heard about lots of things happening on Monday nights. But tomorrow week, we're having a whole night just to talk about the days of creation. How long are they? How old is the earth? How did God create? These kinds of things. All the questions we haven't got to in the sermons because we're wanting to focus on the particular point of the Bible, which is not to tell us the mechanism, but to tell us why. Why did he do it? Who are we in it? What are we? They're the questions the Bible's concerned about, not so much the scientific mechanism. But we will tackle those Monday week. Come along. So what we have is a closer look at uh, day six and the whole chapter moves forward by a series of problems being solved. Look there at verse five. Now, no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, no plant had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth and there was no one to work the ground. Problem, no shrub, no plant. Solution, or the reason for the problem is because no rain, no man to work it. So, verse 7, solution, the Lord God formed a man. From the dust of the ground, he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. So what you have, problem, solution, the creation of man. And just notice in this, we are not now talking about the creation of humanity. We're talking about the particular creation of the male, the man who is gendered as well, male, man. And what you have here, therefore, is when you look more closely at what was revealed to us in Genesis 1, that God would create humanity, mankind, in his image, man and woman, he creates them. When you look more closely at that, what you find is that God created man, male, before female. Now, Paul makes something of the significance of that in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and you can chase that through. It isn't irrelevant. But God creates... And again, we're actually shown that humanity is special. 
And just to quickly underline this, we haven't got time to dig into it, but notice this verse 7, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground, like all the other animals, because all the other animals uh, come from the earth, are raised up from the ground. So humanity is just like an animal. We're not made from the stars or some solar array. We're made from dust. Be humble. But the Lord God not only breathes life into the man like he does with all the other animals, he does it by coming close and breathing into his nostrils. There's an intimacy and an intentionality and a closeness that God has with the human that he has with no other animal. And this is of a piece with one, chapter 1 with the image of God. Uh, God intends that humanity is special of all creation and intentionally given life in a special way compared to all. And this is true of Adam, but it's true of all humanity. Psalm 139, every one of you sitting here is a product of God's special intervention to bring you life. You are fearfully and wonderfully made by the Lord God. You were no accident. God intended your life and you are precious to him. It's part of the wonderful blessing of the biblical revelation that humans, yes, animals though we are, we are unique of all the animals, have special rights, and there is an equality between men and women that can only be grounded in this truth that God has given women and men equality together in his image. Young women, older women, you do not need to prove that you are a man's equal. You just have it by God's intention and good design. You are an image bearer. You don't have to live like a man or be like a man to demonstrate it. Be who you are. It's a beautiful truth. God then creates a garden in the wilderness of the world and he sets the man in it. Verse 8, uh, he made all kinds of trees to grow. Verse 9, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. This is a God who is generous and rich in his gifts to humanity. Um, it's watered, verse 10. Uh, it's a rich place. Uh, rivers and so on, it's, it's uh, in abundantly provided for the life of man. Um, God is, is gentle. Now, this is setting us up, actually, for chapter 3. So next week, we're going to look at chapter 3 in the sinful fall. And this is setting us up so that we see the nature of rebellion for what it is. Human rebellion is horrific because it's a rebellion against our sovereign God who has given us, created us, and has been so good to us in the richness of life that he has made for us. This is all to set the scene uh, for the horror of the fall to come. But in the midst of all of this, uh, there's another problem. So first problem, no man to work the ground. God creates the male and puts him in the garden to work. But there's another problem that emerges, verse 18. The Lord God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. Problem. Number two. Now this problem's heightened actually because of the language of chapter one where everything is good, everything is good, everything is good. Here is the first thing that God declares is not good. And the thing that God declares is not good is that man, male, is alone. And so his solution there in verse 18 is to make a helper suitable for him. Now that's significant language, though it needs some care. Uh, a helper suitable for him anticipates the relationship between men and women that's not a, that's not symmetrical. We'll need some care. We'll think into this in just a moment. 
And so to, to find a helper suitable for him, the Lord God, verse 19, parades all the animals, all the wild animals that he has formed before the human, the man. The man gives them names, verse 20, which is an act of dominion, to name. Uh, he, he names all the, heaven, all the creatures. But the answer to man's need is not found in the animal kingdom. And so God puts Adam, verse 21, into a deep sleep and creates the woman. But notice this, from uh, verse uh, 21 down, we have an extended discussion about the creation of woman. Man was created in one verse. But women, woman is described in her creation over a number of verses. Because her creation is a big deal. Now notice the man's reaction, uh, verse 23, uh, when the woman is brought to him, he says, he, he bursts out and says, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for we should taken out of man. Two things. I think he doesn't just say it, I think he sings it. I think he bursts into song. And uh, he praises the wonder of this new creation, this woman who is taken from my rib, my side, to be alongside me, not beneath me, uh, made in, of the same stuff as me, to be a partner with me. Uh, it's this wonder of the helper who is suitable. Um, and one comedian, I love what one comedian has said about this many years ago. He said, uh, when Adam calls Eve woman, he didn't say woman, he said, whoa, man. And it was this kind of, does it still work? Yeah, delight in the, in the beauty of this woman that God has made. Um, and um, Paul the Apostle actually reflects on some of this in 1 Corinthians 11 and says that woman is the glory of man. She is the greatness of what man is to be, the glory of man. None of this is what you'd expect in the Bible, is it? But it's wonderful and good. Uh, now, the implications flow from this for their relationship. God's purpose is that they would come together, verse 24, because of this, because uh, 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 a suitable helper of the same stuff, man, woman, verse 24, this is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and the two become one flesh. God's purpose is that they come together in a new relationship that takes precedence over any other relationship. And notice it's the man who initiates that. It's him who leaves other relationships to form a new one with his wife. Uh, and so he is, in a sense, charged with the, the protection of this new relationship, um, the honouring of it. And the consequence of them coming together is a oneness that is utterly profound. The two become one flesh. What an astonishing thing to say. Now this anticipates Christ and the church, Ephesians chapter 5, and the oneness that's established there. But what forms is a unity, a oneness, that is only possible in a heterosexual union. That's only possible in a man-woman union. And I'll come back to this in a moment. And finally, verse 25 they're both naked and feel no shame. God's assessment of the beautiful thing that's been created is trust. They trust each other. 
There's no fear. There's transparency, openness. There's nothing to be ashamed of. This is God's ideal. Now, of course, it's difficult to achieve, it's now difficult to achieve that in the fallen world, Genesis 3. Uh, but nonetheless, this is what God intended for us. It's beautiful. Now, there's the what. You got questions from all of that? No doubt, lots of things are going, wow, hang on, what about... Let's try and tackle some of this. Let me dig into a few pieces. When we go through this chapter, you do need to take care because some of the ideas can be easily misread, especially today. Now, in saying that about chapter 2 of Genesis, I'm going to say the same thing about the Barbie movie. That is to say, I've listened to lots of people misread the Barbie movie overreact to the Barbie movie, triggered by the Barbie movie. Well, just chill and take it easy. You see, there's, it, needs to be, it needs to be read and watched sympathetically to the intention of the writers. Um, for instance, the movie is not a condemnation of men. Um, Ken in the movie, I know you've not seen this many of you, but Ken in the movie actually is a proxy for every woman. Because the final scene where Barbie teaches Ken to stand on his own two feet and stop making his identity around Barbie, but finding Knuff, finding his own life, is actually the writer of the movie preaching to every woman. And man. I think the thing's got more richness and complexity. Um, and so just sympathetic listening is important for us. And what we need to do the same with the Bible, with every bit of communication. Let me illustrate this. Come back to chapter 1 and look there at verse uh, 26. The Lord God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, the birds in the air, over the livestock, all the wilds in them. That they may rule. Verse 28, God blessed them and said, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over. Now, an unsympathetic reading of the language of rule over leads you to what conclusion? Domination, very good. They're given dominion, but when we read the word dominion, an unsympathetic reading of the word dominion means domination. Subdue and rule can easily be read to mean rape, destroy, use for your own purposes. But here's the thing that helps us see that that's not the case. God creates humanity in his own image and one of the things about being an image bearer is that we're to rule under his authority as he rules over all things. And the nature of God's rule over all things is the rule of love. Where he has rule and authority, but he exercises that for the good of those he rules. The Lord Jesus says this, he critiques fallen human rule when he says, the pagans lead like that, they lord it over others, not so with you. Those who are first must serve. And the point of rule and authority and dominion is an expression of responsible authority to express for the goodness of that which is ruled. To pour out yourself for the sake of. That's how the Bible thinks about authority. Not in a pagan way. You see how unsympathetically you get it wrong, but sympathetically you see what the Bible's saying. Let me give you the other one here, though, is the word helper. So verse 18, chapter 2, 
I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, when you hear that a woman is made to be the helper of man, what's an unsympathetic read of that? Servant. I need a coffee. She gets it. Uh, you know, I, she's there to be subservient to men. Now, that's, an, that's, that's, an, that's a, a quick triggered reaction to the language of the Bible. But like we ought not do that with the Barbie movie, <laughs> we ought not do that with the Bible. Um, and a couple of pieces help us with that. The, the language of helper is used throughout the Bible in a number of places, not just here in Genesis 2. And the person who is most often described as a helper, an Ezra, is God. He's the helper. It's a position of dignity and glory and greatness. And God is never subservient and neither is the woman. And her help is particularly focused on the fact of his need. It's because he's needy that God makes her to be a helper, you see. She is made to be his helper because he needs her help. And uniquely, he needs her help. Because no one else, no other thing can help like she can. Now, what does it mean to help? Well, what we need to do reflect here is on what's the need. So made to meet a need, what's the need that she's made to help with? This will give us some clarity. Now, the immediate need that verse 18 tells us she's made to help with is, verse 18, what's the, what's the lack and need in the man that causes her to be a help? Loneliness. Uh, it's not good for the man to be alone. I'll make a helper. To help in his loneliness. To bring someone to be with him and alongside him. To partner him, do you see? Um, which tells us, of course, about men. That men are not made to be alone. Uh, that the rugged individualism of many men is a, is a, is a fallen understanding of masculinity, you see. Um, and that's why uh, when all the animals are brought, none of them suit because the kind of help he needs in being alone cannot be met by any of the animals, which tells you that the kind of help is more than just company. In a moment of some frustration many years ago, because we don't have frustration in our marriage anymore, but in frustration, my wife did say, now she'll probably deny this, but she did say to me at some point, do you know I'd be better off with a Labrador? You did say that, didn't you? She doesn't remember it, but it's stuck in my mind, right? And, you know, so um, if you just want company, a poodle might be good, right? But the kind of help in loneliness that's being offered here, that God intends here, is the meeting of minds, of equals, where he is able to share his need for companionship, faithfulness, and support and she is able to provide those things and him provide the need for her as well the intention for marriage in this is the coming together of bone of bone flesh of flesh image bearers who walk with each other through the ups and downs of life that is not possible with any other except one just like me 
Now, what is the... Is that the only need being met here? You see, the, the nature of companionship is not just withness, but actually engagement together and so on, a rich relationships being intended. But what is, what is the other help that is being... I want to suggest to you, when you look at the larger context, there's another help that's necessary that she provides. Have a look with me back again at verse 26 of chapter 1. What is the task that Adam and Eve are called to do? They're called to rule over... Uh, livestock and so on and so forth. And verse 28, they're called to be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over. Now, if the help that man needed was just for farming, when all the animals were paraded before Adam, which do you think he should have picked? Well, a bullock or an ox, Yeah. A front-end loader or something. But the task is not just carrying things. The task is being fruitful, increasing, filling and subduing. And so the task he needs help in... Now, I'm about to say something. (laughs) I'm about to say something that is going to trigger people, right? Because what I'm about to say in our day and age is offensive and amongst Christians is odd. But it was common fare in Christian theology for centuries until the last 60 or 70 years. This was just, what I'm about to tell you about men and women is just, was just common thinking. Um, but many of you are going to go, what? <laughs> what? What is the thing that she brings uniquely that no other creature can bring? No other man can bring. The ability to enable him to be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. No one else can do that. Now, she's not doing... Here's why I've got to be careful. She's not doing that as a simple baby factory. That's not the Bible's picture, and I'll tell you why. That's a terrible distortion, a terribly unsympathetic reading of what's being said, and I'll show you why that's the case. But consider men and women in their biology with me for a moment. Um, as a human, as a, as a man, as a woman, we have biological functions, digestion and all kinds of things. And the extraordinary thing about my biology is that I don't need any external help to do this biological work. My body is completely self-contained. I just need food and I can, all the functions happen and I don't need anyone to help me in it. I'm alone in it. Every woman has the same deal. Digest, all of that stuff, you don't need any external... You just, it's independent, biologically functioning. Except for one thing. There's one thing a man biologically can't do on his own. There's one thing a woman can't do on her own. We are designed to have one gap. And it's the ability to procreate. Man cannot reproduce on his own. Woman can't. can't They need the other. The other needs. you, You have to come together to pull this off. Now, God could have made us very differently. He could have made it possible for Adam to fill and be fruitful and increase in number by just cutting his fingernails and having them turn into kids, which would be really convenient, wouldn't it, right? But he could have done that. But he didn't. He made it so that the man needed the woman, and Paul reflects on this in 1 Corinthians 11, and the woman needs the man. Man is born of woman. God made it with this mutual dependency built into our world to show our need of each other and to create the path of reproduction through the radical coming together of two people 
in an act of love, uh, an act that actually bonds them in love together. God's purpose is a beautiful picture of what he intends. And the beautiful thing of the man's response, he delights in her. He leaves other relationships to cleave to her and they become one. And the oneness is of a very much deeper kind than you might just imagine of emotional oneness. Let me explain what I mean. When the two become one, what is being referred to is not just emotional love for one another, which any human could have with another. It's the sex act, which, whether it completes itself in, in um, fertility, the sex act of intercourse speaks to the completion of a man and a woman together. We become one in joining to do something that we couldn't do on our own. That's a oneness that no other, a man-man, a woman-woman cannot have that sexual oneness. Unique to heterosexual marriage. Further than that, if that act does complete itself in conception and the birth of a child, that child is the fruit of both people so that it further unites them. This is our child in our family. That is a profound further uniting and oneness that God intends. You cannot get that except in heterosexual marriage, which is why calling it marriage has always been our historical position because any other relationship, a different kind of relationship, companionship though it might provide. Now care here. If you isolate some of the points I'm making, you get the handmaiden's tale. I'm not suggesting that a woman is a baby factory to be used by men. That is not Genesis 2. It's the delight in each other. It's the coming together of leaving other relationships to be united in a companionship of mutuality and respect for one another where he, he's the one responsible to create this new relationship to protect it and give it space to grow and flourish. That's the Bible's picture. Intimacy, no shame, vulnerability and love and trust with one another. Now, this leads to some massively important implications that will take us back to Barbie. And here's the main one. You ready for this? Men and women are different. Who'd have thought? We're equal. Image bearers, made of the same stuff, but different. And this is the thing that's missing in feminist ideology and was profoundly absent in Barbie, the movie, though it kept slipping in constantly. No, I haven't got time. But what you have is two visions of life. One, the Bible, which takes into account the richest truth of who we are as equal image bearers, but different. And what does life look like when you have men and women who are different to each other, equal, but what does it look like? And you have... The feminist Barbie ideology, a kind of equality that lacks the nuance of difference with massive, massive negative implications that follow. Let me show you. Barbie. Um, and if you haven't seen the movie, you'll still get this, I think. It's based around the notion that men and women are just people. We are equal, which has come from the Bible, but we're equal... But there's no differences between men and women in Barbie world except body shape. Barbie's a toy, of course, but it has no genitalia, it has no internals, there's no womb, there's no hormones, it's just a body and so is Ken. 
The only thing that's different is how they look. So Barbie, in Barbie world, can do whatever she likes. She can be a doctor, a lawyer, an astronaut, a labourer, whatever. There's nothing constrains her. There's no thought of constraint. In fact, the idea that there might be constraint is obscene in Barbie world because we're just, we're just people that look different. But do you see the thing that's massively missing in Barbie world? If you've seen the movie, what was, miss, what was absent entirely from Barbie world? You never saw a baby. You never saw a baby. There was no mother having to carry a child, give birth to a child, nurture a child, feed a child. There was no hormonal issues of cycle. There was no menopause. None of that was in Barbie world because you've just got two people who are the same but look different. Now, that is profound. In Barbie world, therefore, men and women can be whatever they want just because they're people. The problem is, in the real world, none of that's true. Men and women are different, made differently, in a way that shapes profoundly our experiences of the world. And this came through in the movie where there was a speech by a mother about the complexity of being a woman. No man sitting in the audience had any insight into what she was talking about. But women were crying because she exactly nailed what was happening for women. And you need to be understood, and it's profound to be understood, because men and women are different. But I don't feel that. But I know you do. And that someone voices, it's great, it's wonderful. This is the good thing about the movie. You see, the profoundly important truth about a woman is the orientation of your biology towards the fact of childbirth. So much of who you are is designed. Now, design is not destiny. Doesn't mean you have to get married. Single people are still single. Doesn't mean you have to have children. All of that, yes, but there's a design that's built in. The very fabric of who you are as a woman. Now, I'm not suggesting that reduces a woman to, the, to, to be... Just obey. That was another strength of the movie, actually, was at the end of the movie, Ken was taught that he didn't need to define himself by his relationship with Barbie. That's a good lesson for women and men. You get it from the Bible, Proverbs 31, where your definition of who you are is not your husband or your children, but the God we serve. But that's a good message. Proverbs 31 has a woman who is strong and fully in control, who, who has a broad shape to her life outside of the home, but is focused on the home. Has a central concern for children that's been given to her and so on. Christian culture was wrong to reduce a woman to just that through the 1950s. But Barbie and modern feminism is wrong to deny that that's a reality. And the world that it therefore creates can not work and it destroys women, men and children. Let me show you this quote. It's interesting, providentially, this was out two weeks ago, I think it was, is the date. Listen to this. Um, A woman's biology has always been a fatal flaw in the dominant feminist theory. The way a baby craves its mother's milk, the way a mother's body searches for the baby it's birthed, the menstrual cycles, hormones and menopause... It's all quite inconvenient if one is trying to work like a man. The things a female body can do have been buried and ignored 
to preserve the structural integrity of an otherwise compelling ideology of equality that has transformed the lives of women around the world. Do you see what she's saying? She, she is a, she is, she's quite explicit about this. That the feminist movement has deliberately buried and ignored the fact that women are different to pursue an ideology of equivalence to create an outcome that the feminist wants. But it's predicated on a lie. And it is causing all... It's more and more people, young women, are emerging saying... She said, I'm sorry, I'm going to take a few more minutes. Can you bear with this? She, she, she said later, she said, I went into the delivery ward, a Simone de Beauvoir disciple, career woman. I came out a conservative stay-at-home mum because the fact of children changed her because she realised she isn't just like a man. Praise God. You see, there has been a problem of abuse and domination of men, absolutely. And that we are tackling it is very good, but the solution that's been offered by diminishing a sense that women are different is creating more problems than it's solving. We are hurting women except the strongest women who can have it all and have people to help them have it all. The message is that you can live life like a man, a selfish man, but women you can't. And recognising that. And that men recognise that and so care and are sensitive is profoundly important, which is what God's picture is. We're hurting women. We've removed the complementary care that men and women provide in relationships with each other. They've been told, men have been told that women are just like them, and so they go, oh, okay, and treat women like men, which destroys all but the strongest women. We're hurting children. When a woman lives like a man, it means the kids are left. And what we have is the rise of abdicating men who are leaving mums to look after kids on their own, and we have the rise of the need for secular work to prove your worth as a woman. Interesting conversation that uh, one of our young women had um, in receiving family payments. Once the youngest child had reached a certain age, she was put onto a program where she received a coach from the government to coach her back into the workforce. And so she had a conversation, which the exact details I wasn't going to get wrong, but she had a conversation where um, the coach encouraged her, now your kids are getting older, you need to get a paid job and get back in the workforce. And she said, uh, to, to, to serve society. And she said, but I do provide a service to society. I'm a mum. And I volunteer. No, no, you need to get a job if you want to serve society. Do you see the whole philosophy that's grown out of this ideology? Family is undermined. Caring for kids is undermined. Whereas the Bible celebrates motherhood as precious, beautiful and good for the sake of kids. And it celebrates the need for men to therefore provide and care for the ability to enable mums to do these things. We're losing marriage in it all. We're losing marriage as a mutually dependent relationship, which isn't codependent. The movie's right in this. But we're losing marriage as a place where couples come together to give to one another and we're creating marriages where people live as housemates, living their independent lives to come and enjoy each other and go and live their lives. That's not the biblical view. 
The biblical view is a union together where your strengths enhance hers and hers enhances yours and there's a deep mutuality in giving. Now, not every marriage is like that. We live in Genesis 3. But there is God's picture for us. And finally, we're, well, not, we're losing men. In a feminist ideology where you teach that men and women are no different except for our body shape, what happens, in, unintended I think, is that men are driven either to toxic masculinity or they're also driven to perpetual adolescence. Because they don't know how to... They either react and go, um, I'm just like a woman, uh, I, I'm, just, I'm no different to a woman, she doesn't need me in any particular way, I can go and drift and live my life how I like. Because she can manage, she's a, she's, a fully, she's a Barbie woman. And so you don't need a man. And so he says, all right, I don't need you either. And you drift into adolescence. Or toxic masculinity, where you go, hang on, I'm not the same. I'm really strong and she's not. And so I can dominate. And she ought to cope with that. And you end up, you end up with this, what we've got. Because we've taught this ideology that men and women are the same and they're not. And finally, we're losing the beauty of Jesus in the church. The oneness and mutuality and trust that comes from seeing those that are different joined together in oneness of Christ and the church, which is what marriage is to portray for us. Brothers and sisters, there are two visions of life that are being presented. Um, We have the Bible's vision and Barbie's vision. Which are you going to embrace? You need to think it through. And I want to urge you men to embrace the Bible's vision. And so, men, step up, take responsibility, love your wife, provide for your wife, care for her as someone who is different to you. Be there for your family to protect it. Learn to take responsibility. Women, Learn the beautiful and good thing about being a mum, even though you might be single. This doesn't require that you marry, young woman. Uh, Sarah, who we were introduced to a little while ago, uh, Sarah worked as a missionary on her own as a single woman for seven years in the Middle East. She didn't need a man to live a fruitful life. But now that she is married it's tr- and with a child, it's transformed the way she has to engage. Young women, if you're married then learn to love what God has in store for you and the impact of children, family and the help that you can be. Embrace it and love and delight in it. Don't reject the work possibilities but see the power and beauty of the other. Is that enough? Let's pray. Father, please, um, please help us be wise to see through the world and to see the beauty of your vision for us. Thank you for your gift in the scriptures. In Jesus' name. Amen.